I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Today's guest, Debbie Weiss, is a spitfire. She has an extra strong bond with her dad. They both became widowed at a young age and have overcome the void together. She is the author of Available As Is, which is a memoir about getting yourself back out there midlife. How do you do that? It's not going to be completely behind a computer screen. You have to find someone with similar ideologies. She's a writer, a lawyer, and she calls herself an unemployed slacker. Debbie Weiss, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. I am so excited to connect with you, Debbie. I read every single page of your book. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so, I, when I saw that you said something really nice, like you read, I wrote it. I was like, oh my God. Okay, this is awesome. Wow. How long did that take you to write? I didn't set out to write a book. So, you know, my husband died 10 years ago and I started just writing little vignettes like seven, you know, maybe like eight years ago. So it was a matter of like maybe six years ago. I mean, I'm getting off here. It took a long time, but it was, a lot of it was just, having writing little pieces and writing a little bit on my own before I decided to try to get a real book and get it published. Wow. That's a process. It's a process. It was a process, but at first it was just like a weekly writing class. And I was, when I was dating all these nuts, I wrote, I was writing like little blurbs, you know, I was just like little vignettes and I was blogging a little bit. So I had all the pieces because I couldn't remember all those details now. So then when I, and I wasn't really a, a good writer because I was a lawyer, you know, I didn't, so it wasn't like till I did some writing classes and started to get into it, you know. Interesting. What have you learned about writing? Oh, do you have all day? <laughs> I, I got, I got a master's of fine arts in writing. I saw that, which is pretty cool. It was cool. Yeah, I was 56 when I graduated. So I know a lot about author narrator convergence, how to not how to structure stuff. I worked with a really big deal editor who taught me a lot about writing. I can tell you how to work in flashbacks, how to work in structure. Yes. It yeah, tell me some of that stuff. What is the okay. difference between working with a hotshot editor versus not? Well, the hotshot editor, unfortunately, the connections didn't really help. I'd hoped they would help more. It they did get me a couple of good book blurbs. What's good about it is she's an amazing writer. I mean, and she's has a lot of depth and she's taught at MFA programs. So she just worked really hard on my books. I'd worked with a couple editors who weren't hotshot authors and this author didn't have to do this. But what was kind of amazing about her is she really cared about the book. She went back in a few times to the point where I'm like, okay, you know, but she really went through. It's like there was one point where I had I'd way made what I thought were all her changes. And I'm like, pat myself on the back. I'm getting my MFA. I'm just, I'm doing great. And she said, well, these are all really nice, but you kind of missed the point of what all my, what my changes were about. And she's like, you are, you're idealizing your marriage too much. You know, you, you've made it so perfect. And that's not the point. The point is recognizing like what the flaws are. So you can, the hardest part for me with the book was structure. I can tell you a lot about structure because I had two parallel timelines and that was really hard. And that took me about a year to structure it. I just, sometimes I just had to put it aside and go, eh, because the first chapter was dating and I really wanted it to be about dating. So I didn't want it to be about cancer. And then the next chapter had to be about dating. 
I mean, you couldn't go from dating to my husband's dying. That's weird. I mean, I guess I could have, but I didn't want to, but I had to work in the deep part. So it wasn't like, this is a dating, this is just dumb date stories. So it was really hard. If you really care, I just did a podcast with an amazing writer, Ronit Plank. I saw that, but I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah. If you really care, she's big on craft. We hit all this stuff. So if we don't have an extra hour now. I I'll think definitely I, check that out. We yeah, can, yeah, that, that we can actually it. link to it in, in the show notes. I'll, I'll drop a link to that episode. That's cool. Oh, that would be awesome. You know, just off the top. I mean, she's also, you know, it doesn't matter, but she's also a fellow Jewish writer who deals with a lot of these issues. And I, I find that I just find her work really important. That's so cool. How did you guys connect? As a writer who writes memoir, there aren't a lot of podcasts for memoir writers. So I found hers and... I didn't know that she, I mean, she, she takes unknown authors because she's got some real, real acclaim of her own. And she said, yeah. And then she reads, she reads your book. She researches it. I mean, she puts a lot of effort into this podcast. She'll read your book. She'll be with your book. She'll have super smart questions. So she just, you know, I just kind of found it that way. That's um, a heck of a plug. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's amazing. I, I, I think because she's just so generous with her time to put that kind of effort into it. You know, there's a few people who do podcasts and that's very kind, but they're like, they're reading your book summary off Amazon and you're, and you're like, okay. Right. You can't go as deep like that. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I yeah, loved so the parts about dating. I actually met my husband on JDate and it made me think back to what I wrote on there. And I think what you write on your dating profile is different, obviously depending on what stage of life you're in. You're right. No, you're right. Because I met my current partner, I was 54, yes, 50, 55, 54, 55. And we'd been together five years. But yeah, my dating profile, well, it's actually, it's right about like it was in the book. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all the tr pretty, pretty much the truth. You know, it's compressed. It's a couple things I took out because they're mean to people. But you know, that, that was my dating profile. And that's like, you know, when I wrote mine, I remember thinking, well, I'm going to put on a lawyer. So I hopefully don't get scammed. And so and people who are intimidated, easily intimidated by women, men who are easily intimidated by women, I don't want them. So yeah, and I wanted it to be funny. So somebody and then I got this guy and seemed pretty cool. And then that was the second chapter of my book. Wow. It seems like it's hard to leave room for fun in dating. I agree. <laughs> right? I like totally you, you're you at this, you're at this stage where you never thought you would be and you want to kind of tiptoe into that and have some fun, but fun comes with lists and expectations and baggage. I mean, that can take the fun out really quick. <laughs> I totally agree. I mean, I totally agree. Yes. It's also, yeah. I mean, it's like you want to have fun. So you figure like, even if, you know, you meet somebody and okay, you don't want to see them again. You don't have any chemistry, but you think it'd just be like a fun coffee date, kind of like a podcast. You know, I've done a whole bunch. You meet people, you talk to them some, you relate to more than others, you know, whatever, but it's always pleasant. I always have a good time. You know, I like talking to people, but dating, it was like, you'd meet people and it was like, oh God, I mean, I can't even make it through coffee. I can't even get through this phone. I can't even, you know, I just put up like a Facebook post. I think it was, may have been on Instagram too, where I talked about like, you know, even the preliminary phone call, this guy's going on. Uh, he hit the half hour mark talking about his back surgery. And it was like, okay, you know, he looked great in his picture, seemed intelligent, good job. And it was like, okay, I've got to go. You know, it's like, uh, uh, yeah. And, oh gosh, when you describe too, how it's just like all they wanted to do was talk and they don't leave yes. any room for you to actually put in your two cents. Exactly. Yeah. And it also, I don't quite get this, but it was something about men and maybe some women do this, but only like with really good girlfriends where it's like, if you meet somebody and you know, you go, hi, Irina, this is our date. You know, how's your day? And you go, oh God, I'm having such a shitty day. My ex-wives and my alimony payments. And you know, it's like, why is this an emotional dump? You know, I don't go on a date and be like, how are you doing? Well, you know, I'm hitting menopause and I've got these hot flashes and you know, it's weird. And then on top of that, do you feel guilt about dating? I did. I felt a lot of guilt, especially because the way my husband died, you know, with the, with the denial and me being angry at the end and being his caregiver, that was really hard. That was, that took a long time to get past. And have you accepted it? I did. You know, it helped with therapy, therapy, grief therapy. I Therapy, if you have a good therapist, people are like, I mean, therapy's great. I have anxiety. I still have therapy. It's good. 
it's, it's good to have someone to talk to. It doesn't have to be a crisis, you know? And the other thing that really helped me was writing because I just started to write about it. I have a friend who's amazing who told me to do this. He's a Vietnam vet who's written through a lot of his own trauma. And he said, you know, write about it. And I did. And I put it up on the Huffington Post. I was a Huffington Post blogger. And I had so many comments from people who are like, hey, I've been through that too. You deserve a good life. Your husband would want you to have a good life. Not one person said, you should feel that way, you know? I don't know, somehow putting it out in the open and talking about it and, and getting like supportive reactions kind of helped because it wasn't like the secret anymore. That's amazing that you were able to get your writing there. And that's amazing that hearing those kind of comments gave you the support that you needed. It was amazing. Back then, it was a lot easier to be a Huffington Post blogger. This was like 2016. And you could, you could, it was unpaid. It was this weird sort of back alley of the Huffington Post where all this free bloggers were, were blogging. And there was kind of a secret to getting on. There was kind of an email address for Ariana Huffington. And if you had it and you had a few credits, so I did that, but then they took, that's all been gone for years, but I do have a Huffington Post piece that they pay for that's in the real, in the personal section coming out April 8th. Ooh, can you tease anything about it? I can. It's called, it's about uh, what I learned after being widowed for 10 years. So it's about how I reinvented myself and recovered after being widowed. Mm, I love it. I can't wait. And when that comes out, you'll have to give it to me and I'll put it in the show notes. So one thing that my husband wanted to know, because he was a physics undergrad major at Berkeley, was how did your dad get interested in nuclear physics? And was that in your family at all? Oh, no, my dad was the first member of his family to go to college. He was born in 1932. um, I believe we all in, in Brooklyn, New York. Nice. And he did go to a, you know, Brooklyn back then, yeah, 1932, you know, people lived in different areas that were ethnic. So he went to school with a lot of kind of high achieving other Jewish students. And he had really good teachers. It was a public school. And I mean, my dad's also a genius. You know, he is a theoretical nuclear physicist. He got his PhD from MIT in the mid 60s, I think, early 60s. So a lot of his professors, you know, were people who'd escaped from Germany, you know, from from Eastern Europe. But he was also just, you know, he could hold his own. So he's a genius. I think he would have found physics kind of no matter where he was or when. But I also think he was just really interested with like, how do things work? And he has a mind for math. Hmm. So, but part of it, I think was kind of maybe the, just kind of like being in a community where people were big on education. But he really, he just, you know, did all this stuff. He just like, how does this work? And somehow he figured that out, like from model airplanes to how does this work at the quantum level? which most people don't. I actually loved how you incorporated some of what your dad said into the book. I thought yes. that that was so creative and fun. Thank you. That was fun. Well, you know, he was my mentor when my mom died because, you know, my mom, my mom died when I was 10 and he was 42 and he had to pull it together with a 10 year old, you know, at a time when people didn't, men didn't raise children on their own, you know, especially in Danville, California, which is a real kind of a cow town back then. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we were, were super close. That's like when I saw your podcast dis- description, it was like better call. They're like, oh, dads. Yes, yes, I get this. I understand this. Because <laughs> when I have questions, even now, my dad's 92 and a half. I just saw him yesterday. Aww. So yeah, he's old. I mean, but he's as sharp as ever, you know, as sharp, his voice is the same. So yeah, when I have things, questions, I mean, he's my go-to person. You still call him, huh? I do, I do. He doesn't like talking on the phone, but email, yes. Wow. I love that. Do you remember anything about your parents' relationship? Only that it was very traditional. My mom had a master's degree from Rutgers in social work, and she had been working as a social worker when she married my dad. But, you know, when I was a kid and we moved, well, we lived in Boston and then we lived in Danville. I remember her not working. So I was young. She planned to go back to work. And I remember her cooking and in in California and West Coast, we have Sunset Magazine, which is like the lifestyle magazine for the West. And I remember her making, you know, sunset recipes and being into cooking and decorating our house and painting and gardening. We had a big yard and just being really domestic. So I kind of never thought of her as anything other than kind of mom, you know, and when my dad came home, we'd make him a gin and tonic and they would talk and I was fed beforehand, you know, and the TV had to be off and I would, you know, so I just remember their relationship as being really traditional, but I don't think she was. It's just that, you know, she died when I was 10. So I never got to know her. That's hard. Do you think about her birthday or times you wish that 
she could have been a part of? Not with my mom. Yes, with my husband. Mm. My mom was a phantom to me. I mean, that was, I'm almost 60. So that was, you know, that was 50 years ago. I've had so much of my life without her. You know, I wish she could have lived, obviously. And I think looking at her book, she was clearly a feminist. She used to travel to Europe by herself once, you know, every couple of years. She had cousins in Scotland. She had the feminine mystique, you know. I I would have loved to get to know her. I would have loved to have her input in my life as I was growing up. But that's more of like a phantom thing. But things that you're saying about your mom are things that you've now explored. That's true. I have. I have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish she'd lived. I mean... I don't know. Everything's so different. My dad would have been an entirely different person had she lived. You know, he would still be probably super traditional because it was right on the cusp. She died in 1973. And that was when people, at least in Northern California and the Berkeley-ish area, were exploring themselves. So he got into Buddhism and meditation and he totally changed. Everything he changed. I don't know if he would have changed had she lived and my dad wouldn't have met my stepmom who he's been with for like 50 years or a really long time. Interesting. Now that you've like gone on this dating path and then seeing your stepmom relationship, were you thinking about the comparison? You did kind of talk about that in the book as well, like that your dad found love and how he found love and where he found love. And you're like, maybe I should try that. Also, you mentioned in your book that you felt like widowdom was almost like genetic or passed down. That stayed with me. I was like, oh my God, that's crazy that you both shared that. It was crazy. I mean, obviously it's not genetic, but it was crazy. And when my husband died, I must admit, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. You know, how can this happen again? How can this happen to my dad and me as a child? And then, you know, again, to lose the person that I love the most, It, it felt like, You know, like, I think people view bad things and good things as kind of like evening out. And it was like, well, I should have already paid for this. I already did this, you know? That gives me the chills. I have to say too, like in the book so many times was I thinking like, I would love to hop on a plane and go somewhere. You mentioned this in the book, like hop on a plane, just go to an airport, whatever's the next flight taking off and just go explore. Like that's something that like you never do. Or, you know, am I appreciating my husband that loves me enough, right? Like when you lose that and you see how fragile life is, it changes everything. It changes even how you feel about the relationship. It did change how I felt about the relationship in some ways, because I mean, what was so hard is that he went into denial because he had cancer. It was metastasized when it was diagnosed. So at some point he must've known that he didn't have, that this, so there's certainly a possibility he didn't, he didn't have a long lifespan. And we prepared for it in a few ways, like getting a will to get, you know, getting wills together, paying off our little suburban home. But I mean, I didn't know things like his banking passwords a few days before he died and he paid all the bills. And so it was really hard. We were so unprepared. I didn't know how to even watch the, we had like this projection system in our living room. I could not watch a television show in our living room because he was an engineer. My husband's an engineer and I get that. There's so much that he does and handles. I would also be screwed. Yes. Yes. I was screwed. Exactly. And it was like, why didn't, and I was also really angry because, you know, when he died, I, I was left with his parents who are, were wonderful people, but he chose to exclude them without ever thinking how that would hurt them or how that might hurt me as someone who would be seen as complicit in that. Yeah. I even asked my husband, I was like, God forbid something were to happen to you. Do you think your parents would have anything to do with me? (laughs) That totally came from reading your book. It's it's a, it's a crazy thing to even have to ask. Right. And, and there might be some parents that would want more of a relationship than not. Well, you can tell from the book, his parents did, which I'm grateful for. I actually have lunch coming up with his, my former mother-in-law on Saturday, which I'm kind of freaking out about because I really didn't want her to read the book, but she did. And I had good reasons because, you know, I have images in there of George, her son, you know, when he was in the later stages of cancer. And so I said, you know, I really don't think you should read it because, you know, you don't want to see your, think of your child this way. I mean, this isn't, these aren't things you want to know. But she read it anyway. She's an extraordinarily strong person. And she said, you know, she's read it. She recommended it to a couple of her friends who were widows. They liked the book. She's heard good things. Let's have lunch. So that's my next Saturday. Yay. (laughs) Oh, man. That's cool, though. 
I think it actually it is, cool. is cool that you went and traveled with them. And also, I mean, you started hiking like five to 10 mile treks. I was like, that has to be good for your mental health, like getting it out is. into nature and like pushing yourself to new limits that you didn't think you could do. It is. It totally is. I mean, yes. It was really good too, because, you know, in the book, I just gotten out of a really bad relationship and it was when I'd stopped dating because the dating process was so enervating, you know, all that online, all that barrage of stuff, all that crap, you know, somebody at some point has to deal with the fact that dating sites are like rape culture. So here I was in this, you know, it's true. It's true. It's horrible. And so I'd been in a, a sort of abusive relationship, but I go more into in the book. I was kind of shocked at myself for having been in this situation. And it was good to get out and hike and just be with people and just talk about normal stuff. You know, you just, you're in a group of people, you're walking, you're talking about just whatever, you know, and it was great date, it, complete kind of different from dating because you're not trying to impress anybody. You're certainly not dressed up, you know, rolling out of bed, pulling on hiking clothes. It was really challenging, but I was doing that up until about last year when the, when the book was starting to come out. But I, I did that. I moved him about a year and a half ago and I was hiking all through then to get rid of the stress of moving. You know, it was like, okay, I'm stressed. So I'm going to hike and then I'll pack, you know? That's great. That's a healthy habit. For sure. It was. It was. I have Not to a- say at the end of the book, like everyone probably wants to know, like, did you find someone? I did. I was very lucky. I did find somebody. It took me about five years online, but we've been together five years and we moved in together a year and a half ago into That's a new amazing. house. So yeah, I did. Wow. What would you tell somebody that is going to date midlife? I know kind of you revised your dating profile of what you might have changed in the beginning. Do you have any advice for people that would have been in your shoes and, you know, that may have been widowed and wants to inch their way into the dating world? Beware. Yes, I do. I have a lot of advice. I actually wrote about it in a piece for Next Avenue, which is a magazine from through PBS for like mature grown up, you know, mature daters. And I, I write about it a lot, but My first piece of advice is do not date until you find who you are on your own. I dated too soon. I dated 14 months after my loss. I was still very fragile as a new widow. And I had a lot of guilt over George, which does not excuse the behavior of the men I dated. But you have to be really strong. So when some guy says, oh, well, why do you live here? Or I wouldn't have done that. Or you'll never find anybody like George again. You know, you need to be able to say, you're wrong. Uh, We don't have a, you know, we're we're finished. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, not take all this negativity to heart and to be able to be strong on your own. So it isn't like, is it this person or am I dying alone in a closet? You know, you need to be seeing alternatives. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is probably just, you know, I used to advise people to go online because you'd meet so many people, but it's so cruddy that these days I probably more like, you know, maybe be online on the best site you can find and put a modest amount of time into it. But in general, do the things that you're loving and see if there's other people to do them with. Now, one of the things, you know, like I love is yoga and that's 98% women, but hiking you meet, you meet nice men. I mean, I've met much better men hiking than I've met online. I haven't really dated them, but I have gone, oh, this is a nice person. Oh, if I were single, this would work. Or I would fix him up with this gal, you know? So definitely to find yourself as a person and then not to let the dating stuff take over your life or influence you to just kind of put it in a little corner that works for you. If you want to play the numbers game, which I did great, but just take it as a modest part of your life and then just limit the amount of time you spend, you know, someone, you know, you just limit the amount of time. Someone says, Oh, I want to text for a while. No, I don't have time. Quick phone call. That'll tell you a lot. Quick coffee. That'll tell you a lot and you're done. People waste a lot of time because they text with people who don't even live near them or might not even be the the real person. They get into crazy situations where some guy is like, I'm so in love with you. I need you. And that's like, that's not true. It's just manipulation. So it's really a matter of being very self-protective and being very, very protective of your, your time. That's really good advice. Do you still like to talk about George? I do. I love to talk about him. I write about that too. Um, yeah. I do. I love to talk about him. That was that was my last newsletter. Basically anything I think I write down someplace. I do. He was a part of my life for 32 years. I knew him since I was seven years old. And so, so many of my memories, so much of my life is intertwined with him. You know, what's the first like concert you really got into? 
going to the Ramones with George. What was your first boyfriend like? George, what was, what was your home like? I mean, everything was so much George. And to some extent, that part of my life still, what is George, you know? I think it's great to talk about people we've lost. There's nothing wrong about it. It doesn't mean you haven't moved on. I mean, if you're, you know, if you break down in tears and you have to leave any gathering you're at, then, you know, maybe that's not the time and maybe you shouldn't be venturing out too much. But otherwise, these are the people we love. I mean, I know I'm going to be talking about my dad for Ever. I I talk about him all the time now. He's still with us, but why wouldn't we talk about the people who who are big parts of our lives? You know, George to me now that I've reconciled the guilt and kind of gotten over how bad the past, you know, the last month, few months of his life were, he's an absent friend. I love in your book how you said that you're his legacy. Oh yeah. I think that is so important to feel that way. That he would have wanted you to be happy and to live on and and to be the person that he fell in love with and that you're continuing for him. Thank you. That kind of came to me. I know the scene you're talking about. And I was thinking about it because George was a workaholic, which is a regret, but I couldn't change that about him. You know, when we knew his time might be limited, I did want maybe to travel before things were bad, you know, and have more time together without him being on call. But that wasn't his work. That was him. You know, we hear a lot today about, you know, darn these tech workplaces, but that was him. His colleagues were great folks, but I couldn't change that. So when I was writing and I was thinking, well, his legacy is his work and that's what he wanted. And I thought, no, he loved you. He did so much for me. He cared for me so much. But, you know, being in denial, we never talked about what he wanted for me after he was gone because he thought he was going to be here. I think that's actually a really important question to ask your parents, to ask your spouse, yeah, to pass on to your children. It's a really important question to think about. I agree completely. I agree. You know, well, you know, I, like I said, I'm real close to my dad and I can tell that for me, he wants me to find what my passion in life is. What do I really want to do? You know, the book's kind of, it's there, I've done it. So every time I visit, I feel like I'm 18 and he's asking what college I'm going to, because he's like, well, what are you, you know, what are you going to do now? What are you? And I'm like, well, I'm doing a few podcasts. I'm doing a chat with our local literary society here in my small town in California. He's like, no, but what are you really going to do? And it's like, well, I'm, I'm 60. This is when people are retiring. But, but I know that's what he wants for me is to find a passion like he found his passion in life, which was physics. No, I'm not going to find physics. But I agree. I do think it's important to talk about it because it would free people from a lot of guilt. You know, people might have ideas. One thing I love about the people we love is that they can surprise us. You might think that your person is going to say, well, I really want you to, you know, keep this house or I really want you. And they might say, you've always wanted to explore the world. I want you to have that. You know, you, you just don't know. It's so funny on my J-Date profile, I literally <laughs> put, but this was in my mid twenties. I want someone who keeps me guessing. My husband oh my gosh. still remembers that line. He said it today and he kind of like made a joke about that. He was like, you should totally tell her that. But there is intrigue there, right? Like you don't want to be so predictable. That's what keeps your relationship spicy, right? Yeah, exactly. And you also want to grow. I mean, you want to be, you want to grow together. So yes. the person that what they wanted for you 10 years ago when you were having those conversations might not be the person and what they want for you far later in life when, when you are getting older or somebody is ill or whatever. I love that. Did your dad, he probably never tried online dating, did he? He, uh, that was 1973. There was no online dating. No online dating. How about a matchmaker? And what are your thoughts about a matchmaker? That's two questions. I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to be like methodical here. My father, he did answer maybe a couple, there were a few personal ads then. He was in the San Francisco Bay Area and particularly San Francisco. There was, there seemed to be a lot of very attractive, evolved women in their mid thirties or early forties. He was 42 when my mom died, but not that many great men. Even back then, there were not that many great men. So he met women in real life. We were just talking about this on Sunday when I saw him. He went to classes and things that interested him. Like he'd take a UC extension, Berkeley extension course on Buddhism or meditation and even the wines of Rhone, France. And he would meet women there. He could just go to a museum and meet women. Just he did this in real life and it worked very well. And there were a lot of terrific women around. At that point, I think a lot of women were coming into their own. There'd been the 60s, birth control was there, choice was there, don't get me started. 
And they were looking for more fulfillment, being freer in a way that isn't as toxic as it is now. I think these days, a lot of women's sexuality is used against them in ways that I don't like. And letting that go. Um, I'm like, explain that a little more. Sorry. Well, I guess what I mean is I just feel like now dating, it's like, oh, let's just meet or hook up. And that's not always good for women. I, I think a lot of men abuse that and there's the pleasure gap and it isn't so much self-exploration as kind of a hookup culture. Mm-hmm. I, I think things were a little freer in the seventies in a more open way. I wasn't there. I, I mean, I was 10, so I wouldn't know, but the way my dad describes things, you know, you still went on a nice date. You still, pe- men were still had manners. They were still pleasant. It wasn't this sense of, you know, come on over in hot tub, you know, on a first date, which I, I don't like. Um, <laughs> I've never used a matchmaker. I know people who have, and I personally don't know anybody who's had good results. I have read, probably like you've read articles online about people who've had good results, but I just don't know about that. I would be curious. I, you know, it's interesting because I did recently, as part of my book, I was surprised by a couple of women lawyers I'd met. I hadn't seen for 20 years, the women I'd practiced with, they're lovely women. They showed up at my book signing and we had lunch. And one of them has been divorced for, oh, many many years, like, you know, 25 years. And she did, she has tried professional matchmakers and she's accomplished, lovely, independent. She's wonderful. She still didn't find anyone. Interesting. I'm just wondering if it would be good to have like a go-between where like, if you didn't like the person or they weren't meeting your needs, you would just have that person tell them versus you having to do it. Because a lot of times women have a hard time telling them that. That's true. Yeah, we're kind of nice. I mean, men are kind of just like, you know, they get in the car and drive away or they're or they don't feel it or or worse, they they try to get into bed and then they don't feel it, you know. And that's part of what I was talking about about people not being real nice is is the misrepresentation. Or like, let's just be friends. I'm like, uh, that didn't feel like friends. <laughs> right. Ex- yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of what I was talking about is trans is honesty. Is is being honest about the potential for a future. You know, be honest. Yeah, a matchmaker I one thing I think would be cool too is the screening process. You know, you wouldn't be online. You wouldn't be getting these bots. You wouldn't be getting the nasty messages. You wouldn't be wasting your time and you would hope that the people that you were meeting were also as serious or unserious as you were that you wanted the same thing and that they had qualities, you know, they were pre-screening. Like it's like you're you're Stanford, right? And they're giving you applicants. Yeah. Also, how important is like having a list of what you want and what they want and how many of those things can really be crossed off in order to have fun and in order to have an experience and in order to just check out a new location or a new venue or a new experience? I feel like maybe it's too rushed. The matchmaking, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I I feel like it's too it's too weighted. Do you know what I mean? Like you are meant to be together and it's like, "Oh, okay. I see you as a life partner. Now I'm frightened." Cuz like my current person was completely opposite. We were just going to be friends. He was super different and we, we ultimately found we had we connected a lot more than I ever thought we would. But I think if someone had said, "Is this your person?" I probably would have said, "No, no, probably not." You know, that we would have a good a good friendship, a few lunches and that's it. Interesting. Do you think that's because of the work you did to get to the place that you were at when you met him? Yes. This is so weird. You're hitting everything I'm writing about right now. It's like it's like you're on my it's like you're you're in my in my pages. Well, hopefully I'm helping your pages. <laughs> You're in my word processor. But yeah, I just submitted a piece, fingers crossed, about that. Because when I started dating, you know, my dad has a PhD and George was very, was the tech lead on Quicken, which is a end to it. And I was raised, you know, my dad kind of raised me like, well, Debbie, you know, whatever graduate school you want to go to is fine. So I was looking for somebody with graduate degrees who was very professionally out there. And but but I realized later that was because I felt so insecure in my own professional accomplishments, you know, in my own own self, and that men I was meeting who were kind of more a lot of the guys I met who did look really good on paper really weren't that great in real life in terms of being a partner. I mean, maybe they were great to have on your board of directors, but not as a partner, you know, so I really had to say, well, I just want somebody who has wonderful values and who I love to be with and who I feel a connection with. It's almost inexplicable at that level. And ha- and I had to give up this idea of somehow finding somebody very successful and then going into their life. I had to make my own life, whatever, whatever that was going to be. So that was a lot of work I did on myself. And I had For to you. see that I could be on my own. 
because I was settling for people who weren't right because I was so lonely and I had to make connections so that I could see that I could have a good life as a single person, not the life I wanted. I think I'm wired to be partnered. I think some people might be wired to be single, just like some people are wired to be partnered, but live apart from their partners or see them once a week or something. But I'm pretty much wired to be partnered, I think. But but I did have to be able to see that I could still be having a terrific life and going through my years as a single person, loving my life before I could be with someone so that I didn't feel that desperation. And so that you could be a partner versus a dependent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And by the way, I want your risotto recipe. Okay. It's actually Giuliano Bugiali's risotto recipe from Italian cooking and George made it. And if you want to do it, it's like an hour of stirring. So hopefully you have really strong wrists and your hubby likes to stir as well. You know, Have other people said that the way that you described risotto, I was like, I don't think I've had risotto like that <laughs> well I nobody's mentioned the risotto thank you no they mentioned the men but not the risotto <laughs> I was and like to I'm gonna be paying attention to watery risotto in restaurants now well and it's well you know it's hard to do because it is all that stirring to crisp it up a lot of people when you do a risotto they boil the rice or they they do other things to get it mostly cooked and they finish it with the stirring See, George at home, he did it from scratch. So it was stirring the whole time. It sounds amazing. I don't think I've ever experienced it it like that. Yes, we have. I have not made this. uh, My partner and I, this is is not happening in my life anymore, but it's a beautiful memory. I love that memory. Also, have you thought about adapting the book to a screenplay at all? Well, I don't think the question is, have I? I think the question is, has anybody else? I mean, you have figured out how to get into some pretty well-known publications. I did get into the New York Times Modern Love. That's what you're talking. I know you're talking about that. And that was yeah. it, that was coming up on, I think, five years or something. The thing is, that was a great time. And I didn't have a book then, but that didn't yield anything. That's Mm. the joy of being a writer. You can write something and maybe in a certain, a given moment, you can get it out. I mean, a little bit, you know, that's like for a bit, I wrote for a bunch of magazines through this feeder thing. Um, I was in Woman's Day, Good Housekeeping, but it was through a feeder program run by one, an outside editor. And when that shut down, none of the editors at those magazines acknowledged me. I couldn't get anything in, in, in those magazines. I can't now. I can't get anything in the New York Times now. I mean, tried like I, to I tried re-hit those people up. I tried a few times. Most of them are gone. But when I've submitted a few things, I've never, I've never heard back. It's a void. There are so many books out there. I'm an indie author. I'm an unknown author. That's what's kind of been the problem for me. You know, I'm a former lawyer and I wrote this book when I was, you know, I got it out there when I was 56. And I was kind of fine if people, if, if nobody liked it, I would have been like, okay, this is an experiment. Obviously being an author was a thing to do, but not for me. But to get a book out there now is so very, very hard. The best I've been able to do is the Huffington Post. I had a publicist that went nowhere. So yeah, if somebody would like to adapt my book or something, you know, as it is, most of us are kind of begging for reviews and guest posting on, on blogs that are, you know, we are grateful. I am more than grateful to anybody who wants to put my writing up, but trying to get into anything larger has, has not worked. It's such a good book. Thank you. Yeah. I also like think that you're a genius. I mean, anyone who can... Pass the bar at a young age in California. That's not easy. Uh, there's a secret to that. I'll tell you something. Now, this I passed it in 1988. So, and I was 25. So I had I had a lot more brain cells than I do now. Since I've been widowed, I I have insomnia, so I take gummies. God knows where my brain is. But at least when I took the bar in California, the first time pass rate was 50 or 45 percent. But for first time takers, it was 70 percent. The numbers are skewed by people who keep failing. Interesting. I didn't know that. But still, I think you're a genius. Oh, well, thank you, Rena. I'm blushing over here and, you know, nobody can see, but I'm like, blushing. yeah, your book made me think so much about my relationship. I definitely think that that will stay with me. And I, yeah, I just, the one thing that I guess stayed with me the most is that you and your dad both experienced widowdom. I don't know anyone else like that. Do you? I don't think so. You know, I do hear from widows and folks who've lost parents at a young age, you know, through Facebook or something. 
I'm guessing maybe here or there, there are other women I've met, but nobody who's ever really called me on it. Nobody who's ever said, hey, I lost this parent and this parent. Um, you know, I have one friend, she lost a mom at 17 and a husband probably around 50, like when I lost mine. But I haven't met a lot of people who've lost a mom or a parent that young. And then a and husband then, or a spouse. A yeah, I, I'm sure they're there, but nobody's brought it to my attention in a way that, that they really said, Hey, this is, you know, this is me too. Me too. You need a support group for that. I'm like, maybe you should seriously start a Facebook group for that and find other people that you could connect to on that level. I feel like that would be interesting. That's a good Um, idea. I think at least I'll put that up maybe on Instagram and Facebook and just say, you know, I don't have a ton of followers, but to say, Hey, do you, is this you? Or do you know somebody who this happened to, you know, would you want to weigh in here? I can certainly put up some posts because I am, it's an interesting question because I know how my mom's death at 10 shaped me. And I would be curious to see how other people's deaths of a parent at an early age, how that shaped them. And then when they lost their spouse, how that came back to them. Because, you know, the grief books say when you have a, a big loss, earlier big losses come back to you too. I saw that you mentioned Kubler-Ross a couple times. Yeah. Has, has that been a, a good source for you? It wasn't, it wasn't. You know, when I was newly widowed, I started reading it, you know, like few months, like a month after my loss or a week. And, you know, I threw it across the room a bunch of times because it's well-written. It, you don't feel that you're alone. It, I mean, it's amazing. It's, 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 it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. And it's like talking to a therapist. So it's good. It's, it's terrific. And it has really good advice. And you need to take breaks from it. Sometimes you might need to throw it across the room. Well, it tells you, you might feel bad, but it kind of doesn't tell you like, what the heck to do when you're going out, you know, you're going out of your skin. You know, I mean, it's written from a very, it's written from a therapeutic standpoint. And it's the Bible on this stuff. It's wonderful. I think there's also a place for other, like it, in my case, far, 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 far lesser books that also are like your nasty girlfriend when you're feeling like crap after this, you know, I mean, there's, there's room for, you know, it's, it's a different thing. Interesting. I mean, yeah. you know, this is like talking to an, an older, you know, a wise older parent who's like, well, you don't want to go out. You don't want to get drunk. Don't go to that party. Don't, 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 don't do this, you know? And it's sometimes it's hard when you're really struggling to listen to the voice of reason. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I've had people ask me on the podcast because I've talked to people that have lost their dad now, like, how do I think I'll prepare for that? That's a really hard question. Do you think you can prepare for grief? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I would have liked to have had the opportunity when my husband died. I really would have liked to have had that opportunity when my husband died for us to have prepared for what was going to happen. Now, again, my dad's 92 and a half. We talk about it and we do prepare in some ways things that we can do. We just, we did his wills and trusts. You know, he hates doing that stuff. So I help with that. It's eerie. It is eerie. Yeah. It was, you know, when I was helping him with that and dealing with the lawyer, I felt really stressed and I really couldn't figure out why because nothing was wrong in my life. But then I realized it was because that was now in the back of my mind, just like dealing with what we're going to have, what's going to happen to my stepmom because uh, she has dementia now. So yeah, you can prepare it. I mean, certainly for an older person in terms of talking about, well, what are we going to do about this and this and this getting documents in order, but also for, I mean, if you know, spending time with someone, you know, I visit my dad once a week. He lives about a half hour away. I try to visit him once a week. I do. So, you know, spending time together. If we ever stop talking and get a little more focused, I plan to write a bit about him. So I have some memories, although those are, those are pretty strong in my mind. And a lot of my memories of him are in my book, you know, some of them. So I think you can prepare. Now, you know, the house is totally, his house is totally packed with stuff. So, I mean, we are not, this is not a man who is going to do Swedish death cleaning. You know, we can't do that. We can get some documents in order and we can spend more time together. You know, I, think, I always yeah. think about when people make these beautiful speeches at funerals, like, wouldn't you rather say that to the person when they could hear it? Yeah. <laughs> or like, would you want them to be a part of even helping you prepare that speech? Well, that's the celebration of life thing, I think. I think that's why people do that. And I know people who've done that. You know, my husband was in denial, so that wasn't an option. My dad at 92 jokes that everybody he knows is dead. He's finding it hard enough to find people to talk to. Aw. That's crazy. 
what would you want to say to him? What do you think he wants to be remembered for? Or like, what do you think his proudest moments of you are? Me? Well, my gosh. I mean, this is a man who worked with Nobel Prize winning physicists, had an amazing career. I think he'd be proudest of raising me to be strong enough to have been okay after my mom died. And even more importantly, to have been okay when I was a grown up and my husband died and that I could go forward and do things like get a master's degree and write uh, write what, what people think of, seem to think is a decent book. I think he would have been proudest of, of raising me to be intellectually curious and to be able to get through these two big losses and go on to lead a great life, like, as he did after my mom died. Being able to stand on your own two feet is actually a big thing. Yes. Especially after you've been in a relationship for a long time and you were doing it together. That's true. I do hear from a few folks who have widowed moms usually, or a couple widows who really don't move forward. You know, they, their homes are pretty much the same. They see a few friends, but they really, and that's fine. I mean, that's what I thought my life would be like. I just, after a a while, I just couldn't keep living exactly, you know, the same way I had when I was married. I was just going to say, I am curious about one more thing too. Like why J-date? And what does the Jewish piece play? Well, I am Jewish. I'm not religious, but I certainly identify as a Jewish person. When I was looking for community, uh, I joined my local synagogue and got grief counseling from the wonderful rabbi there who also did like a, we did like a little interview thing for my book. Um, That's how I know you through one of the folks there, Sarah Goldstein. Yes. You know her as Goldstein. Yes. She's my cousin. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I, that's part of it. And so I also thought, so I thought that J-Date a couple of reasons. One, I figured that people on J-Date, and this might be a stereotypical Jewish thing, but it was true, They that they'd be more serious. I'd get more professional people, people who were not bots or sexually inappropriate, that, and that I would get a better, a better group of folks whose values align more with mine, and also who understand what it's like to be Jewish, even if you're not religious. Like why like a bagel with cream cheese and smoked salmon is a comfort food. Or like why parents, because my grandparents were like this too, super overprotective. Or, you know, why my grandfather ended every sentence with God willing. Or, you know, so I figured I would get someone who understood kind of me and how I grew up, even though it wasn't a religious form of being Jewish. My dad will like that answer. That's sweet. That's cool. I mean, I am a J-date success story. So yeah, I mean, I think that's part of why I gravitated to the site too. Cool. Yeah, I mean, you hope, you know, if you're meeting a whole bunch of strangers, you're hoping for some commonalities and that seems a reasonable place to start. For sure. You know. For sure. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? Oh, goodness. How did he raise such a wonderful daughter? Aw, that's sweet. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think that my dad sees himself in me. And actually, when you talked about your dad wanting you to find your passion, that's been a big thing that my dad has always supported me on. He wants all of his girls to live their dreams and use the gifts that they were born with. And he's always been a big supporter in that. And I try to do that for my kids too. Yeah. I guess also how he raised you to be so self-confident because you seem really self-confident and I'm much older. So I was, it took me a while to become self-confident. So I just, you know, that's from 300 uh, interviews and that's sweet of you to say, but (laughs) I still struggle with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That for me is a constant work in progress. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think that is truly what the world needs now though, is encouragement and validation and inner work. I think so, especially for women, because we were silent. You know, if you get into the book, I was a young lawyer and I, I didn't have a voice at my firm. There was a lot of sexism and, you know, women were at least my generation were kind of taught like, don't disturb, don't be empathetic. Don't just rep. Don't, you know, look at the other person's point of view. And in all this empathy, I think sometimes we lost a sense of our, our right to, to go forward of, of our right to object of our right to be angry. And I was, I'm really grateful to see some of that coming out. Heck yeah. You know, today I did a post in my Facebook group and it said, it's okay to dot, dot, dot. And some of the answers were be yourself, be the real you take a day off. And I was just thinking those things are actually so simple and so hard. And (laughs) I've even been told You know, even in my religious journey, don't laugh too loud. Don't call too much attention to yourself. But I'm like, what if that's who I am? What if that's my laugh? 
I, I mean, like, isn't that what men do? I mean, men do that, right? Right. They're, they're loud. They're, they're laughing. They're, they're just being themselves. They don't seem to have that extra layer of self-criticism. Like I think a lot of women, I have this, you say something and then you have your inner critic like, okay, was that a good idea? And the guys just talk. And I think it's really great. I've been happiest when I can just, just talk. I mean, even I was even perfect. Yeah. I was even thinking about this interview. I was like, I didn't put on lipstick, you know, I'm like, I have my gym shirt on, but the more conversations that you have and the more real you incorporate and the more relaxed you can be, it comes across and people like it. I agree. Yeah. When I put authentic stuff up on my post, like I put something up about being bullied and that doesn't relate to exactly to the themes of my book. I touch on it, but I got a, you know, a, a reasonable amount of engagement because it's real. Um, a lot of people went through it and it's kind of like not worrying about looking like you always had this, you know, perfect, attractive, appealing life. Yeah. And even your editor said, put more of that in, right? She did. Yeah, very much. She wanted other women, I think, to be able to relate and see themselves to having marriages that were imperfect or marriages, again, my, more maybe more gener- my generation, where you subjugated your desires or your wishes to those of your husband. <laughs> I even said recently to my husband, I'm reclaiming my time. He did not <laughs> like that. But, you know, last night I hadn't, I hadn't colored my hair in six months and I was starting to feel super schleppy. Like I'm just carting around the children to birthdays and buying socks and packing lunches. And I was like, somebody watched this three-year-old. I'm going to color my hair. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's important. It's important. I agree. I I mean, I don't really wear makeup anymore. You know, I mean, I look fine and I feel like, you know, I'm looking older and I thought, but you know what, why do I have to be ashamed of being a 60 year old person? Why do I have to put gunk on my face if I hate taking it off again? Men don't do this. Why do we have to feel like, oh gosh, I'm not wearing any makeup. You know, that's kind of why I usually give my real age and throw that out there because of that whole kind of cute thing. You're beautiful and relatable all in one. No, I think that's really important to be able to be authentic and be ourselves. I mean, that's part of like, was my journey. And what made me the happiest is when I could do that. Yes. I think we should encourage that for everyone. Okay. Let people know how they can find your amazing book and connect with you. And I hope they do. I'm really friendly. You can find me on my website, Debbie Weiss author. I am on Facebook as Debbie Weiss author, Instagram, not surprising, Debbie Weiss author. I'm actually on TikTok with, I think it's D Weiss writer. I also write on medium, which is a lot of fun. And I answer people's comments. So I'm pretty easy to find. If you Google Debbie Weiss, writer or author, my book is on Amazon. It's had some traction and it has some great reviews. So you can find it there or please, you can order it from your local bookstore. My local bookstore was super supportive of me. That's so so great. Yes. Take it back to the old school bookstores, support local businesses. Yeah. I live in a small town and that's a big thing here. And do you still love Danville? Danville has gotten very large. I love many things about Danville, but I had to leave. It was too big, but I do love Danville and I do love the Danville bookstore and the Danville library and my memories of Danville, the wonderful area where my father lives so safely in his lovely home and the peace of Danville when you can find it, but it has gotten very big. So I moved to Benicia, California, which is a small town on the water in the Cartina Straits near Napa. And it's a small town vibe. So I will always love Danville, but my current love is Benicia. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. I was wondering even how to pronounce that. I saw that in the book. Yeah. Benicia was the name of the governor's wife. It was the first capital of California. Cool. I love the fun fact. There you go. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. And I'm totally going to thank Sarah for connecting us. Yeah. I'm going to thank her too. You've heard from my mom. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. This is your uh, interview with Debbie Weiss. Yes, and Sarah Weinstein sent me Debbie. Well, you know, her question is how terrific of a daughter you are. And and then she also brought up how you show elevated confidence. And what is a surprise is, is that it's taken a long time, not 10 years, maybe not 20 years. How old are you? Oh, man, I got to give that away. A long time. The point is, is that you work on your confidence by going out and doing things and having backup and having encouragement. The irony is that 
when it comes to patience and confidence, sometimes it's got to be worked on every day to make the formula really work. But when you're performing well and people see that and it comes out, they think you have it all the time. It's not necessarily the true cover of the story. This is something that has to be worked at all the time. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get depressed. It's easy to question your confidence and abilities of doing things if things go wrong. So this episode is really terrific in a sense. She's had to overcome a lot of disappointment where the cards that she's dealt, the loss of a mother at 10 years old, and she's really found strength in the encouragement of her father and the things that he's had to overcome. And she has some history of her her natural mom because she has followed some of those same footsteps. So you can never really escape where you come from. And on the Better Call Daddy show, we bring out that legacy and bring out that it's not just about us. It's about where you come from and being part of other people's lives to be part of your continuum. And uh, this is another good example of that. This dating instrument that she brought up where she has tried very hard to recover from the loss of her husband. And it's not an easy road when you're married for someone for 20 or 30 years, and then suddenly they can get very sick and they can die. And how do you go on with your life? In this case, there's a lot of young ladies that this happens to, where they've met the love of their life, they have friends, they do things, but they're not even interested in taking another shot at it with someone else because they can't get over necessarily that they can have love with a different relationship. Her father showing that that was plausible, that they could have a meaningful relationship lasting also for many, many years shows her that it is possible. And I think that helped motivate her to keep trying. But you can't do it if you don't have confidence in yourself and have experienced ways of overcoming adversities. You've got to really get your package together first. Then you have a chance to have a new relationship. But look how she's also finding out what kind of game it is to do it online, and how it's not easy to find a relationship that is really genuine. And the only way- to do it midlife. Yeah, especially in midlife, because there's users and abusers when you're down on your luck or when you're down, where people then see that you're weak, they want to take advantage of you. So if you really want to have a strong relationship, you've got to really be strong yourself if you want it to have a chance to have success. So encouragement, talking about it, writing it down, understanding, level-headedness of what your goals are, so you don't just get swept off into, as you would say, Rena, la-la land, thinking that it's all going to just be happily ever after because everything looks good. You got to do your research. You got to do your homework, not only of the new person, but of yourself to know how you can really live in the next step or, the, or for the future. And this is, like I said, a really good example of that. And I still think that even with all the new modern technology and with all of your texting and messages and online stuff, there's nothing like the real deal in person. You've got to really be connected to somebody by doing things in person if you really wanted to have a proper chance because everything else has the possibility of being more misleading when you don't have that personal touch. And what she even found out in writing her book was that you got to get real with yourself and you really have to analyze what the relationship was, who you are, who are you reliant on, what are your tendencies, and get really real about all of that. Right. And don't color code it because if you color code it, you're not really going to get to the crux of the situation. And you can find out that reality can then stare you in the face. And then all of a sudden, you're shocked. What happened? But you didn't look at it realistically from the beginning. I am just blown away by her story. I I read the entire book and I thought it flowed well. And she has a wry sense of humor. And I liked her relationship with her dad. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that when there's a loss of a parent or something happens to a parent. And like I said, a lot of times grandparents do more raising 
of a child than even parents when they're going through different traumas and different situations. But it does appear that when there's a loss of a parent, that other parent really has to step up and be that extra encouragement and that extra bright example if they want their children to have that same opportunity of being able to continue. You know what else it made me think about? If something were to happen to my spouse, would my in-laws take care of me? I mean, it really makes you think. It makes you think, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, that's why I keep telling you that I can't afford to die. I got just too many responsibilities. I got too many pots in the oven where I don't know anyone that could do the same job that I'm doing. So I got so many things going on. Like I said, I just can't afford to leave this world. I got to be around here for at least another one or 200 years. All right, God, listen to this message. Thank you very much. Keep my daddy here. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm signing off. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.